from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. I've known Elliot Spitzer for a long time. I was his consultant when he ran for attorney general in 1998 in New York State. He is one of the smartest guys I ever uh, worked for. Occasionally, he would let me know that. Uh, and uh, had a, a really impactful public career that ended with a tragic misjudgment, but still uh, one of the most incisive thinkers I know. And I sat down with him the other day. My old friend Elliot Spitzer former attorney general, former governor, real estate magnate. Uh, I'm not sure about magnate, but uh, we well, you're working up to ma- You're working up to magnate. All right. Aspiring uh, to be Don- the non-Donald well, Trump. Uh, yeah, but I want to ask you about that. Your yes, family sir. was, you're a second generation real estate mm-hmm. uh, developer in New York. Uh, did your dad have dealings with uh, the Trump empire sure. when you were growing up? Sure. I mean, not not. Donald Trump's father, but we dealt with Donald Trump many years ago when he was sort of new to the business. My dad did. He, he was a different persona, and I, I say this about him, as abhorrent and absolutely revolting as his political commentary has been in, in the past number of years. 30 years ago, he was actually a decent real estate developer. Two buildings he built that were risky but creative, the Hyatt Hotel on 42nd Street in New York City, helped revitalize that part of the city, and Trump Tower, again, creative. But, look, I'm not going to start critiquing his business thereafter, although I think it's fair to observe he's... he's he built a nice building here in Chicago. Yeah, but, but his casinos were in bankruptcy. I mean, there, there was a lot of razzle-dazzle, which I think his, would not withstand scrutiny in, in terms of how he really ran things. But put that aside, his political commentary recently has been just so abhorrent that I think the brand he tried to create over the past number of years is being destroyed. Did you know him uh, over the years? I mean, sure. did you get to know him sure. in your public role? He is brash. He is abrasive. He is not lacking in uh, sort of arrogance. But as you and I have joked off uh, off air, humility is not a trait that New Yorkers tend to have in much abundance. <laughs> as a native, so, I can attest so, to that. So I don't I don't resent that as much as, as just the horrific, xenophobic, racist comments he's made. Do you think he believes it? I, I'm not in a position to say anymore. People people morph. And what I've noticed, and maybe you've had the same experience, David, in, in politics, people begin to believe their own rhetoric because it makes it easier to play the part. And so even if there are people whom you say, look, he couldn't really be believing that. He's playing. He's pandering. A year later, they say it with a certitude and, and, and uh, persuasiveness that you say to yourself, wait a minute, they really do. And so he has said things with, with a consistency and, and uh, venom that makes you think he really does believe it. Let me just, we'll come back to 2016. I want to talk a little bit about you and, and your life. Were you always interested in in politics? Was that something that... I, I was always interested in, and I don't want to, I mean, look, I'm out of politics. I'm, I'm in real estate these days. That's where I'm going to be. So, so I can say this without it sounding self-aggrandizing or self-interested. I was always interested in the policy stuff. I really, and you met me early on in my political uh, life. I, I really never thought I'd be running for office. I thought I'd be in 
you know, an assistant secretary of this or that because, you know, I went to college, studied policy, and my friends used to make fun of me. I would read Rand reports about recidivism and stuff like that. And you must have been fun it. to hang with. Uh, yeah, yeah that, that and two beers, let me tell you, great Friday night. <laughs> <laughs> the only person who ever subscribed to the Rand studies. But, you know, it was – I loved that stuff. And, and that's the grist of really what, what governing should be about. When you were growing up, it's been sort of written that you were – you had uh, – uh, very robust debate at your yeah. uh, at your dining room table mm-hmm. that your dad uh, uh, encouraged that. And that you he, guys- he liked to be the Talmudic scholar, but instead of the Talmud as, as the foundation of the debate, it was what's going on in the world. And and he put us to our paces. I mean, we, we he he was a very liberal guy. He. He grew up uh, without two nickels to rub together in the Lower East Side of New York. It's a great story. I mean, really, it's classic New York, classic American story. No hot water, the whole bit. I mean, this, he's uh, had a great life. Passed away just about a year ago right now, age of 90 and a half. Had a great run. And he he believed that his job as the first generation, he, he was the first one in the family born here, was to make enough money so the rest of us could go out and do other stuff. So my brother became a doctor, my sister a public interest lawyer, and I got stuck in politics, the lowest of the three. But it was, you know, he, he pushed us to do interesting and useful things. You, uh, did you know when you, you went to Princeton, you, you, you went to elite schools in New York, right. you almost got a perfect score on your SATs, only 10 points lower than Chuck Schumer, yeah, as he would you mention know, if he were Chuck here. and I fought over that. I asked for a recount, but it was... <laughs> <laughs> And you, you went to Princeton and you went to Harvard Law right. School. While you were going through your that education, had you already made a decision that you were going to do something in public life? No. I actually got out of law school, as many lawyers who've done well. I uh, was on law review, clerked for a federal judge, went to a law firm for 11 months. Loved it. Paul Weiss, one of the great firms in the country, but realized that was it was just a way station. was a prosecutor for six years and loved that. With, for, with Bob Morgenthau. With, 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 tell you a funny story. He's Mr. Morgenthau still to me, even though I'm in an age where I can you know, pretty much call anybody other than, you know. You Talking know. about the guy who's sort of the model the that legend. law and order was built and, and, around and the Manhattan DA for 35 years. I used to introduce him when I was in government as AG and governor as America's DA. He really defined the, the propriety, the, the, the perfection and demands of doing it right what justice was all about. He was still still with us. He's a great man who defined what that role was supposed to be. So, yeah, no, I worked for him for six years, did political corruption, organized crime cases. Had, you know, I have great stories from, you know, this was, the, this was the day when Goodfellas was there as the movie, late 80s, early 90s, and the mobsters were imitating the movie. It was very funny on the wiretaps. You hear them kind of imitating, you know, Marlon Brando because you say, "Wait a minute, you're real. That's fiction." But they want to be more like the movie stars. It was you know, I prosecuted Tommy Gambino, who was the son of Carlo. You know, great stories, but also you know, important prosecutions. It was only after that. Did you seek out that assignment? Did you no. want to be in that area? Or did no? You- I mean, I was. Mr. Morgenthau called me up to his office one day and said, "You're going to go to the Rackets Bureau." Organized crime was still. This is when Rudy Giuliani was the U.S. Attorney. The, the grip of organized crime on New York City was much more significant. And, and it wasn't just loan sharking. It was construction. It was the fish market. It was carting. It, it was drywall. It was pervasive. Pervasive through industries that were being strangled. And, and organized crime, and you know, I, I use this metaphor in, in, in a very sort of, sort of book I wrote a bunch of years ago. Organized crime had looked back at some of the great American magnates and understood Having a monopoly in a critical sector was a better way to make money than loan sharking on the street. 
And so what they had done was create monopolies in various sectors and garner huge, huge improper what economists would call rents from doing that. Was this eye-opening for you? I mean, did you were, yeah. you, did you were you aware of all of this before you went over to the DA's office? No, not really. Look, I was a, a typical 23-year-old, 25. Can you talk about this at Horace Mann? No, we, you know, I know, I know Horace Mann now has this image of, you know, this, whatever the image is. No, we flip baseball cards and we're kids. We <laughs> talked about the Almond Brothers and the Grateful <laughs> Dead. Uh, maybe, maybe not the dead at that stage a couple of years later. But now we were pretty normal kids. But by the time I was mid 20s in, in the DA's office, spent six great years there, loved it. I mean, it was really fun. And, and, you know, not, not that uh, I hate it when people give career advice, but as, for young lawyers, being in the courtroom is really what lawyering should be all about. So I, I loved being a prosecutor, but if you're on the defense side, just as exciting. You know, get into the courtroom where you have to make your case in front of a jury. And it is just, that's the drama, that's the adrenaline, that is, the, the, I love the judicial system. Flawed as it might be, it's still the one branch of government where there's their decisions made on the facts based upon neutral rules and, and Eighty-five percent of the time, the right decision is made. Do you? And when did you? You, you ran for attorney general when? Ran the and lost time. in ninety-four. Ran and lost in ninety-four. Came in dead last, which was not something I enjoyed. Um, and you know the competitive spirit. Had you ever it. lost at anything? Oh before? yeah, I ran for seventh grade class president and didn't win. Which I am still bruised. Well, no, 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 my, my, you know, my high school buddies remind me all the time. You know, they say, You, how did you end up in politics? You couldn't be elected seventh grade class president. So, you know, because I wasn't the natural glad hander and this and, and that. you needed good consulting. I yeah, think yeah, the- yeah, that's where you come into this. Right? <laughs> Some, somehow I had this great David Axelrod, so I was able to win. It was, uh, the world turned around. And, uh, but no, then I ran in 98. That was a tough race. Had eight great years as AG that were really, um, you know, in terms of the issues from you know, the Wall Street stuff, the environmental stuff. The, well, we let's talk about we that because stuff. you that was a you transformed that office. I mean, Bob Abrams had been Attorney General for right. years in New York, but it wasn't. Uh, you know, some of the things you chose to go after were were new to the, the Attorney the, General's the, office in many ways. You know, the, 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 yes, again, without trying to be or sounding self-aggrandized. I think we, we did things that were more structural in areas that were... On podcasts, by the way, you can be self-aggrandizing. That's one of the... <laughs> oh, oh, is that right? Uh, yeah. Okay. Well, yeah. now, now, so now, have you, at now, it. now that you've given me free license, <laughs> I know, here I go. No. <laughs> it, you know, if I were going back into politics, I'd be interested in doing that. Now I just want to live in anonymity. It's much more peaceful. But what we did, and, and frankly, it wasn't the... The Wall Street stuff is what everybody remembers. But in a way, the the... I thought the first most important transformative thing we did was the study of stop and frisk. We did the first study of stop and frisk. It was 1999. We did every, got every UF-250, which is the piece of paper an NYPD officer filled out when they did a stop and frisk and came out with what was and still is, I think, the gold standard, um, the phrase we'll come back to later, maybe gold Mm -hmm. standard of analysis of stop and frisk policy. And it was from that that the entire debate about policing kicked in. Rudy Giuliani was mayor. He was furious about this because here, here's the conundrum. Stop and frisk as it was being implemented was unconstitutional, but it worked. Now, if you, if you look at it in terms of law enforcement, they would And he say, got elected at a time when crime was absolutely, really rampant in the it, it city. Was, that was his whole stock and trade. That's right. I mean, the emotion of the city was driven by tabloid headlines about crime. And that crime had already dipped significantly. Bill Bratton, who's now back with us, had put in place, and I think Bill is one of the great intellects in terms of law enforcement policy. Bill Bratton had driven 
and on Giuliani, give him, don't like him, but give him credit, um, had, had, had helped drive it down. But the stop and frisk policies that were part of it were problematic. So we did that. We did environmental cases, the, new, new, the clean air cases that were, have sort of percolated all the way through to the Supreme Court in past years, permitting the EPA to use the new source review provisions of the, of the Clean Air Act. Those, there's a great guy, Peter Lehner, spectacular lawyer I brought in as the, the only credit I should get is for hiring him. He, he did everything else. The, the clean air cases that, that were transformative in terms of interstate flow of the pollutants, the NOx and the nitrous oxide, the sulfur dioxide, that really creates the smog and is so damaging to, to our to our health. The uh, we'll talk about Wall Street. You know that, that he, he, the Wall Street case is what people remember, and it, it, you know maybe it was sixty minutes the sobriety of the, the sheriff of Wall Street and all this and that. But really, all we did, and I've often felt I grew up with these kids who then ended up on Wall Street. So I knew them, I understood them, and I used to joke if you, if they cheat on the tennis court, they'll cheat in the office. And I'd seen them this, so I said, wait a minute, there's something going on here, but. Really? So this was your way of getting even with the guys who cheated the guys you in the tennis me. court? Yeah, exactly. It all comes back to that person. <laughs> they, they beat me, now I'll show them. The, 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 the real thing was that if you spoke to people on the street, every of the, one of the major cases we made, they would say to you as their first line of defense, but everybody knows that everybody's doing that. But nobody had had the backbone to do anything about it. The first big case, analysts, where you know, tens of millions of Americans were being told, buy this stock, buy that stock. All of that advice was twisted and was being bought by the companies in return for good commentary on the stock itself. Now, without getting down to the weeds of the boredom of, of, of the analyst cases, everybody on the street understood that dynamic. But nobody at the SEC, nobody at, at the Fed, nobody at the stock exchange wanted to disrupt a system. And that was the pity of it. So when we stood up and said, wait a minute, guys, stop, you can't do this, everybody was kind of aghast saying, well, A, who are you, the AG of one state? And we said, well, we're New York. New Yorkers think we can do and anything. You, you, you uh, used a, a provision of state law, a little known yep. provision of state right. law, the Martin Act, right. to define yep. uh, your, your role in a very large way. But we, we did. We found a jurisdictional hook. It's not as though we were stretching. It's not as though there was any ambiguity about it. The Martin Act essentially codifies common law fraud provisions, but gave the attorney general the capacity to go into court to enforce them. And so what we had to allege was fraud, which without any ambiguity, in my mind, and all the companies, this was, back then it was big money. They paid $1.4 billion, but forget the money. And we can talk about the problem with the sort of settlements that we've been getting. We tried to create structural relief. In other words, merely a a financial payment is useless because usually it's other people's money. The companies pay with shareholder money. And if you don't get the people at the top who've been responsible to leave or change the structure, you haven't done anything. So time and again, whether it was analysts, or it was mutual funds, insurance, we went after what we thought was a structural problem on the street. And the takeaway at the end of the day was that really there were so many conflicts of interest rife in Wall Street because people were playing with other people's money. There was no fiduciary obligation. And the payback to the bankers was so enormous, even while their clients were doing terribly, that the whole system was becoming a house of cards. Do you think it's better today? Better, yes, but not, not good enough. Look, we still have, are having a fight over whether there should be a fiduciary obligation when people give advice to investors. I mean, the Secretary Perez at the Labor, Labor Department is fighting valiantly for this. I mean, I'm not as aware of what the state of play is in terms of who's saying what, but, you know, it's crazy to me 
there's pushback on that very simple principle. And there, there's a great moment when some Goldman Sachs executives were testifying. This goes back maybe eight, oh, nine or ten, and they were asked by I forget maybe Senator Levin, "Do you have to do, live up to a fiduciary obligation? Do you have to do what's in the best interest of your client, or is it the best interest of your own firm that takes precedence?" And they couldn't answer the question, and that is the root of the problem. I was uh, in Washington when uh, the fight over the Dodd-Frank bill was going on, and as you know, and it was uh, Washington was awash in lobbyists, uh, the extent of which we'd never seen before, as, as heavily influenced by lobbyists as Washington is normally, uh, and you you ended up with an imperfect. Uh, law, we did get the Consumer right. Right. Protection Board and some uh, other uh, transparencies right. and so on. Uh, but is it possible to, uh, given the power of Wall Street, is it possible to overcome that power? And if so, how do you do it? Very hard. And I'm the last person who should opine about the, the probability or possibility of getting a law through. Congress never played on that field. I, look, I used to go down there and testify a lot, and I can tell you that even back, this is pre-crash, so it was you know, I guess it was oh one and oh two, oh three, oh four. I guess when I was testifying down there a lot, the Republicans had special what they called Spitzer amendments drafted in one case by the general counsel Morgan Stanley to just deny us of jurisdiction. So that's the sort of thing you're up against. That there is not an honest, what I would view as an honest analysis of the issues leading to deliberative results. What you have is huge clash of powerful interests, and so what resulted, and I give. Barney Frank, an enormous amount of credit for this. You know, Barney's classically acerbic and wonderful and uh, just a great guy. Um, and the White House finally came around. Look, you, you know I had some issues with whether Tim Geithner pushed hard enough early on. I don't think he saw the structural issues through the same prism that I and, and, and others did. But what we got was probably 75% of it, but hasn't eliminated these tensions where you have two sides of major investment banks that the, 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 the sort of the side that depends upon government guarantees is still able to live off that guarantee to create revenue and capital to make bets. And that is the intersection that has always bothered me, where you have sort of the, 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 the federal government's guarantee permitting the banks to know that on the downside they're covered and so they can play more aggressively, which leads them to take improper risk. Do you think that um, we are less likely to have the kind of meltdown that we had in 2008 today? Yes. No question we are less likely today than we were at the peak of the bubble. But the more, the, I would rephrase the question, and, and, and the metaphor I use is it's like getting a speeding ticket. When you get a speeding ticket, you say, oh, I'd better not go above the speed limit. So for the next half hour, you don't. But as time passes, your foot begins to go a bit heavier on the pedal. And so I think the question is, how, for how long do we remember the lessons? We learned the lessons. But how long do we remember, and how adept are we... The next crisis will never be like the former crisis, the past crisis, because finance, like everything else in life, is dynamic. And so will it be, you know, black pools of capital? Will it be high-speed trading? Will it be hedge funds that are still unregulated? I have no idea. But something different will create the systemic risk. And so you need people up at the top who understand and appreciate that a regulatory framework is critical and that... You need people at the top of the banks who understand risk, which we, we, were, we were 0 for 2 back then. We had, you know, Alan Greenspan is revered by many people, wonderful guy. I don't want to speak ill of him, but his, his sort of intellectual worldview was that of a libertarian. 
And as a consequence, the deregulation of Wall Street for a decade led to an environment in which people believed that they could sell credit to fault swaps and therefore risk had disappeared. It was crazy. Let me ask you uh, something related to this and uh, the the obvious point that you're, about the way your career ended. Mm-hmm. You were, um, I think it's fair to say, hated by some people on Wall Street. Uh, the only thing I would disagree with is it's not past tense. <laughs> <laughs> but, okay. And you became governor of New York. Right. And potentially, a, 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 not potentially, at the, while you were governor, you were a major national f- figure okay. and with national prospects. Um, and and uh, you got into a jam of your own making. Yep, indeed I did. Um, do you think that there were people who were trying to catch you in any kind of a disqualifying act? Here's what I would say. I have no doubt the first half of what you said is correct. They they disliked me, and with every reason. I I understand human emotions. They had every reason to dislike me. I prosecuted them. I take them to court. I was adverse to them in many, many fundamental ways. I would also agree with your other fundamental point. It was a problem of my own making. I've heard all sorts of rumors and seen some evidence that, yes, they did everything they could to catch me, but I've always said to myself, it's irrelevant to where I am today, and so I'm not going to think about it or worry about it or care about it because it's it's just not going to change anything about where I am or what I did, and therefore it is what it is. Well, let me ask you a question related to this. Um, do you, knowing that there were people who really had an and and out for you, mm-hmm. knowing that they would do anything to take you down. Right. Uh, what were you thinking? There's no good answer to that, David. And that's a question that I have, needless to say, asked myself over and over. Look, the, the only thing I could say is Greek mythology is, you know, the, the story of Icarus, and, and, and uh, we all have read it and don't realize perhaps we're living it until too late. I mean, that there is, you know, I used to use... Uh, back when I was in government, and you know, the, the irony is maybe I became the, own, the best example of this, hubris is terminal, and th- there is a capacity to begin to believe in one's being inviolate, and society has a, a good way of letting us all know that's not the case. You obviously still have great passion for yeah. public issues, right. and uh, we, uh, that, that, that's apparent here, yeah. and as we were talking before, uh, how hard is it? To, you try to you you attempted a comeback mm-hmm. in New York. You ran for city controller. City controller got forty eight percent, which is pretty good given the the headlines that were being run. It, look, it was it was a close race. It was interesting race and it didn't quite get there. But fifty percent was required. The, this this is yes. Forty eight uh, doesn't win in <laughs> politics. So uh, <laughs> in a two way race. And sure. was your conclusion from that that the freight you carry is just too heavy to 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 serve to 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 be elected to public office again? That may be one of the conclusions. The other conclusion is that I'm not a kid. I'm 56. I have a family that has endured a great deal that, you know, I don't want to say this as though I'm 85 and really, you know, sitting in a rocking chair, but you pass the baton at a certain point in time and say, you know what, there are individuals who are 
five years younger, 10 years younger, 20 years younger, who, who are smarter than I, have better experience than I, they will go out, do great things. It, it isn't, and I, I said this and I used to mean it, politics isn't about people, it's about ideas. And I, I don't need to be the one in there. I, I, I love this stuff. As you're right, I have a passion for it. It still gets my heart beating faster than, uh, you know, just being in business to make money. Uh, although I lo- love what I'm doing now without any hesitation. But it doesn't mean I, I'm not going to get back in. I'm done with that. I loved it, but I've moved on. Talk a little bit about the field as you see it today. I know you're you, you're on the sidelines, but you're not yeah. passive in, in your... Well, I'm on the sidelines, but, well, if you give me an opening and I'll start yammering about it. I'm giving you an opening, man. Here's my Take opening. It. Look, what, I, t- I, these candidates in 2016, let's just take the issue we were talking right. about, which was uh, uh, Wall Street right. and you know inequality has become right. a major concern in the country. Uh, are there candidates who are speaking to this in a way that uh, you feel uh, is adequate uh, based on your experience? Here's how I view it. I think Bernie Sanders deserves credit for sort of being a, a, a voice that has galvanized a fair bit of passion on that issue. Hillary Clinton read a poll, I guess, and decided it was time to talk about it, so she started talking about it. Martin O'Malley is the guy whom I'm supporting. I just have known him for many years. He, he is, as an executive who got things done, uh, I both value and respect his dedication to his principles and to his capacity to make it real. And as the mayor of Baltimore, which is obviously a fraught issue these days, given some of the criminal justice issues, but I thought he was a spectacular mayor. As a governor who passed marriage equality, raised the minimum wage, passed a DREAM Act, Uh, invested in schools, he got it done. He really did it. And I think that capacity to take the speech that others may give and transform it into actual policy that's implemented is what leadership is about. So if you took the 48% you got and put it together with the 2% that Martin O'Malley has now, he'd have a majority. (laughs) Why isn't he doing better? He will do better. And I think that as the – it's now winnowed down to three candidates – which I think is good for him. The next debate in Iowa in uh, two and a half weeks or so, it will be Bernie Sanders, whom I respect for his passion, love his accent, you know, Brooklyn accent for Vermont senator. Only in America could we get this. And, and, uh, and Governor O'Malley will have the chance, I think, to stand up, as he did at the Jefferson-Jackson dinner last Saturday night, and make the persuasive case that you need to be principled, you need to have the backbone and fortitude to stand on those principles. You can't be a presidential candidate, as, as I hate to say, but as I think Hillary Clinton is, who has shifted position on every major issue leading up to this campaign. That's not what leadership is about. O'Malley has been there on the tough issues and gotten it done, and I think he'll make that case. You worked with Hillary when she was the senator from New York yep. and you were the governor, and this became an issue in the 2008 campaign yep. in, in late 2007. Right. Around this time, right. there was a debate right. in Philadelphia in which uh, she and the other candidates were asked about a policy of yours right. to allow uh, uh, undocumented workers to get driver's licenses right. in New York State. And she had uh, multiple answers in that debate to that right. uh, question. What, what was your reaction? Did you Were you watching that debate? I, I, I was watching. I was in my living room, pa- pa- you know, pacing around the living room, watching the TV. And then out of nowhere, this question was posed. And... I think President Obama, then Senator Obama, gave a, the question was, do you support Governor Spitzer's or the New York governor's proposal to permit undocumented immigrants to get driver's licenses? And let me drop a footnote. The backdrop to this is it's good for law enforcement. It permits the, 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 the folks to work. It, it had been a policy embraced by Republican governors and Democratic governors. 
But when I proposed it, it became a torrential outpouring of venom from Lou Dobbs and then uh, the right-wing media. Okay, that's the backdrop. Senator Obama, on that stage, was asked, do you support it? He gave a one-word answer, yes. When it came to time to Senator Clinton's answer, she literally gave three different answers in 30 seconds, to which Chris Dodd then responded, wait a minute, Senator Clinton, you just said three different things. What do you think? And she waffled and waffled and waffled. Subsequent thereto, next couple of days, when the issue was you know, gaining what, momentum. Why do you think? What, what is it? What, why did she react that way? Well, it, it was a politically tough issue. It didn't poll well, but there was no ambiguity about what was right. And if you look about where we are now as a nation on this very issue, very few people, it's, it's the law of the land, I think, in California, a, bunch, a slew of states. And it, it is not controversial because people know it's right and it works. But at the time, it was controversial. And because it was controversial, she hemmed and she hawed. And again, this, was, this is, goes to the core of where are you on immigrants' rights. And the president, not then the president, Senator Obama, now the president, gave an unambiguous answer, yes. Now, the Clinton folks, as no doubt you remember, thought the issue was the problem. I thought the issue was a metaphor for her vacillation. Did they let you know that they thought it was a problem? Yeah, we, we heard from folks who said they want this issue gone. And, and what was your reaction? You know, it's something I'm ashamed of. We pulled the proposal. Now, I don't want to suggest we pulled it exclusively because of that. If you were to go back and look at the, uh, the newspapers at the time, I had virtually no support in New York State. Um, no elected official statewide would, would stand with me. It was, it was a tough proposal. It was, people were, were spitting at me in the streets. And, and I'm embarrassed to say, after three weeks of fighting valiantly, I said, I'm not going to sacrifice my entire agenda to this. Um, but you also but, were acceding to a request from, yeah, yeah. from so, the Clinton but we, campaign. We, yeah. So what, what's your, I, I, I've worked with her right. um, as Secretary of State, and I, I've worked with her on other things. Mm-hmm. And I found her to be very bright, very serious. Um, intensely smart. Intensely smart, clever, glib, a joy to be with. None of that has to do with whether or not she's the best Democratic candidate for president. Because take the, the trade issue. I mean, where, where she did say it was the gold-plated standard, the TPP. She did speak for it 45 times, did say this is great policy, and has now not only completely reversed her policy but is claiming that that's not what she said. And, you know, we need, at this moment in particular, where the issues are so tough, the issues of inequity, growing our economy, getting jobs back for the middle class, we need a a leader who has the capacity to be forthright and direct and not somebody who wavers and waffles. But you agree that she's likely to be the Democratic nominee? No, if one looks at the poll numbers, there's not much question about it. The only thing I would suggest is that, and you, you, this is your territory, not mine, but eight years ago, the, the, you know, the, there was a, almost a similar feeling at this point in the campaign that she was still the inevitable nominee. So I think there's a lot of time. There is a lot of time. I think the Iowa, difference is eight years ago, she hadn't gone through the valley that she's gone through and come out the yes, other side. And garnered I, the respect that you get from the public, legitimately so, for having been there. Now, look, I think there are a lot of tough issues ahead um, on foreign policy for her. And I don't mean the Benghazi stuff for the Republicans. Forget that. That, that. That's awful what they're doing. What I do mean is what her larger structural view is on foreign policy. Remember, she voted the wrong way in the Iraq war. She hasn't yet explained what is the right response to the Arab Spring. And is it, why is it that 
you know, her reset with, with Russia. You know, we now have Putin dominant as a player in, in, in the Middle East. You know, the pivot to Asia. I mean, there are a lot of things, I think, that are going to be legitimate questions that are substantive questions that deserve to be debated. I should point out, and you should want me to point out, that you're divorced now. The companion, That's your current companion yes. works for Governor that is O'Malley. Abso- so absolutely. Everybody knows that. Yes, we, absolutely. We, we, should, uh, we should say that. Correct. Um, I am biased and, and overtly so. Okay. Well, and proudly a, so. A fourth I right, never, for, a fourth I never right thought that being biased was a negative thing as long as you had a foundation for it, if it's based on fact. So um, talk to me a little bit about your life now. Um, you probably didn't, when you were growing up, see yourself as taking over the family business and becoming a... No. A, uh, yeah, look, I, I was always very close with my dad, and so spent a lot of time talking business with him and, and loved it, because even though you know, politics was a passion, the dynamism of the private sector where you're creating things is equally compelling. Not... It, Almost equally as compelling. There's something tangible, real. We build buildings, we we own them, we maintain them, we create jobs. And I don't want to sound like you know somebody from the American Enterprise Institute, or you know maybe on this issue I'm happy to. I'm very proud of that. And, and we put our own capital at risk in big ways. And when we produce and we build, there's a sense of pride that that results from that. And you're doing projects in west uh, on the west side of Manhattan in Brooklyn. We have we have you know again not that anybody cares a pretty significant portfolio of properties that we've built over 50 years, and we have a, a big project we're building in, in Williamsburg on the waterfront in Brooklyn. It'll be beautiful uh, project at the Hudson Yards in New York in Manhattan, and a, a very large project in uh, downtown Washington. You know, New York City. I grew up in New York City. You're, I I went to Brooklyn. That's why I love you. I went one to, of the many reasons. I went to Brooklyn. Uh, to go to Coney Island right. and to go to my grandmother's house in Seagate. Yeah. But I really didn't have much reason to go to Brooklyn other than that. Right. And very few people I knew did. Right. I mean, I grew up in Stuyvesant Town and yeah. housing development in Manhattan. Brooklyn is now prime real estate. Uh, Brooklyn. My mother grew up in Jersey uh, and her father worked in Hoboken. She was in Jersey City. She was born in Weehawken. These are prime real estate. Now, they were dumps. <laughs> Back then, well, look, where where do where do everyday people live in New York City? Well, look, the real estate in, in New York is expensive, to state the obvious, but it's more expensive to rent in Williamsburg than on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. That's how desirable it is. When my my three daughters, who are now in their early twenties, coming back to the city for a summer, some of them will be there full time in a couple of years. I said to them, "You want to live in some of our buildings on the Upper East Side?" They said, "Daddy, what are you nuts?" We want to be in Williamsburg. It is cool. It is gritty. I'm 30 years too old to walk around Williamsburg. Everybody has a beard, a tattoo. Nobody wears a tie. But it is go there on People a People had beers in, beards in Williamsburg 30 years ago because yeah, but that was a different. That, that, this was a different Williamsburg, yes, exactly. Yes. That was black hats and beards <laughs> and, and pay us. So that was, you know, which was one generation removed from me also. But now it's a different beard and a different <laughs> tattoo. Yeah, yeah. How are your kids doing? How did doing they great. come through all of They're this? They're doing great. And thank you for asking. You know, at the end of the day, that is. Uh, what matters that they're I've got I'll, I'll brag I've got one who's uh, not not that this is the way you measure it. they're wonderful great smart empathetic kids who care about the right things and one of them happens to be a second year student at Harvard Law School one of them is a first year student at Stanford Medical School and one of them is a junior at Princeton studying philosophy and writes papers I can't understand for the life of me so I, I couldn't be prouder of them and what they're doing and what they want to do do you think uh Let's just finish up here. Um, do you do you think that there's too much uh, attention paid to the private lives of of public 
figures. And uh, I, I don't want to give you an easy out because yeah. you already acknowledged yeah. that you made a, 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 a big mistake. Yeah. But um, what, you know, what about two, this I'm, culture? I'm of two minds about it. Yes, we, we live in a voyeuristic culture where schadenfreude is, is the emotion that sort of drives our tabloid mentality. That's too bad. And it, is, it certainly distracts from a serious discussion of the things that matter to us as a society. Having said that, the defense I would make for those who would look at me and say, no, it's a legitimate issue, is, you know, how you lead your life is one way to measure somebody's character. And I, I of all people, won't try to deny that. And so, fine, give them their due. Is, is the search for purity a vain search? Yeah. But, but um, so I, I wish it weren't uh, always quite as front and center, but I understand why people raise these issues. It's really good to be with you. Elliot Thank you, Spitzer. Sir. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files. For more podcasts like this, subscribe to The Axe Files on iTunes. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.